This episode of the Jiu-Jitsu Times podcast is brought to you in part by No Judges Needed BJJ Apparel and Lavender Lane CBD Products. You can use the promo code JJT for 20% off your first order at No Judges Needed and the code JJTimes20, all uppercase, last two items are numerical, for 20% off your first order of CBD products. Thank you very much for sticking with us. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Jiu-Jitsu Times podcast. I am your host, Kevin Bradley, joined as always by my co-host, Kevin Gallagher, and an incredibly special guest, nothing but the best for the JJT podcast listeners. Um, and it's fun. It's funny. We got a story behind uh, uh, Rob. Uh, he almost needs no introduction, unlike a lot of the, the guys we have on the show. When we had Roddy Ferguson on and started kicking off that uh, conversation about what is and what isn't jujitsu, like what is grappling and all the uh, different definitions therein in the JJT like group chat on Facebook or like the, the message boards on Facebook, a lot of people started bringing up uh, Rob's documentary that he's got coming out, Closed Guard. And to, to speak on that a little bit more, I'm just going to let the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, retired MMA fighter, and documentary filmmaker uh, take it from here, Robert Drysdale. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Kevins. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and uh, thank you for the kind words. And yeah, man, it's been, uh, it's been, uh, it's been a crazy run with Jiu-Jitsu, man. I've been all over the place. And I enjoy it. You know, I, I love this sport in many different ways. So it, it's been everywhere. Every, it's been from just, you know, becoming more confident to winning medals, to traveling the world, to fighting professionally, to coaching. And now I get to get involved and in, be involved in its history. And um, so it's been a fun, fun journey, man. And I'm happy to be here and uh, share some, some of my time with you guys. Well, again, thank you for coming by, you know, especially given how dire the world seems to be. We, we were before we went live, we were talking a little bit on how we're all doing, you know, with gym starting to reopen in some sense. So uh, how are you doing, man? Um, You know, um, as we mentioned before, like uh, I'm two minds about this on one end. You know, the I've been exposed as to how the economically dependent I am on jujitsu. I never really thought that you know jiu-jitsu would not be around you know for me so it's, it's been it's been an awakening in, in the sense where i am 100 percent invested in the sport in every way shape and form so there's that that is, that can be stressful on the other hand i i really like the quiet man like i think i needed a little break staying at home has been nice i enjoy my solitude i enjoy being alone in my room and learning how to play the guitar i get to listen to music and read my books and uh, it's been nice. In, in, a, in a strange way, it's been a very, very welcome break. Yeah, you know, I, I can relate to that to myself. And the majority of people I've had on the podcast here, the, the ones that I feel like are really getting through this the best are the ones that are doing the same thing you're doing, which is making the most of the time that they have. And they're realizing that, wow, you know, yes, this is rough. And yes, we're dealing with some economic issues. And yeah, we'd all rather be doing jujitsu. But at the, at the moment, unfortunately, we can't. So if we have that free time, Let's make the most of it. Let's figure out how to play the guitar. Let's 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 enjoy the solitude and the peace of of, of being alone. I personally have, have kind of recognized that. Like I, I told a couple other people, like I for the last four years of my life, I have been competing or getting ready for some form of a competition, like almost nonstop. And just the stress of that, 
wears on you, not to mention the, 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 the actual training you have to do it. And it's been actually quite peaceful for me to sit back and kind of just enjoy just being alone and getting your head right again. Yeah, no, I'm, I couldn't agree more, man. It's been beautiful. And yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I like to think that what you do in your free time defines you. It's not what you say or what you think of yourself defines you. What defines you is what you do when you got nothing else to do and you choose to do X, Y, or Z. That is who you are. And it was like when I kept thinking of that, I had originally downloaded a game called Rome Total War. Ever played that game? Like, oh, I'm building an empire. I'm conquering Europe, you know? And then I played the game for like two days. And I'm like, this is embarrassing, man. Like, I do so much more with my free time. So I started playing the guitar. I started writing a book. And, you know, it's been great, man. Like, I feel that. Like, I'm forcing myself to, to do something productive. And it was hard at first. But now that I'm seeing progress, I wouldn't trade it for anything else. I'd much rather be doing something that's, you know, you know, I'm evolving in some way, shape, or form than just, you know, sitting back and watching the world happen. And I think that people should be doing that. Do something productive with their free time. 100%. Yeah, I have got to the I got to real quick. I just got to say that I was in a very similar situation towards the beginning. I was playing this game, Clash of Clans. It was a problem. <laughs> yeah, I I I was real I got so hooked into it and I was playing it for a few weeks and then the minute I was about to like actually spend money on the game, like I was about to buy something to make the game easier, I stopped yeah. and I was like, I gotta you, I gotta stop because I played Clash of Clans for like seven years, right? Like seven Wow. Years. I did. I was like I had the highest level of everything. Like because it doesn't take much of your time. It's like fifteen minutes a day. That's it. It really doesn't consume your day. And it's the only game I played. And then I, I was at the park. This is like a few weeks ago. I was at the park walking a dog, and there's this guy on his iPad doing this right here. <laughs> he was doing that, right? And then I remember, ever since that study of that mice that goes and he gets a kick of endorphin in its brain every time it presses the button, and then it goes and does it again because it feels good and it keeps doing that. Yeah, and then that mouse. <laughs> drops dead because it forgets to eat and drink water. Right. It yeah. just drops. It's getting so high up its own endorphins that are artificially produced by pressing a button that it just dropped dead. And when I saw the guy doing that, that's when I was like, oh, shit, man. I don't want to, you know, I, I, I literally took out my phone and I went to Clash of Clans and deleted it. And that was it. Oh, was man. Like, like, like life-changing moment, man. Like, I, I don't want to be that nice. You know, I just want to be, I don't know, I want to be productive, man. You got to, sometimes you got to, like, be disciplined and just, like, stay away from that shit because it will consume your life. All, yeah, the I, class, I, all the Clash of Clans players are just like, oh, thank God, Rob finally left. <laughs> <laughs> I was up there. I was, it's surprising how bad I was in combat considering how much in, how invested I was in the game. I'm not – I was not <laughs> a strategist, you know, but it, it, was, it was It's like a fun little break, you know, in between – throughout a hectic day. It's like a two, three-minute break. So, um, but it's, yeah, it's still a game. We, uh, we, 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 that was a big thing in the jiu-jitsu community for a while, that Clash of Clans. I remember a lot of my, my, my black belt friends and a lot of my guys that own gyms, they were all into that Clash of Clans for a little bit. It was kind of a thing. We had our own little subgroups. I played it a little bit, but I never got, I never got really into it. So, so I, I'm going to hit you with a, with a tough question because I, I know you have some, some, some opinions because I've been following you on, uh, on, on Instagram and I've been watching a couple of your posts and I, you know, again, I commend you and it's, it's someone that I consider to be a, a pillar of the jiu-jitsu community for, for various reasons. Uh, you know, I'm just curious what your opinion is of jiu-jitsu gyms that are opening 
against the rules of quarantine? It's a tough one, man. Like I, I see it from, from there's, there's clearly, there's a health issue, you know, and, you know, I think that human life and well-being should trump our desire to be in the gym choking each other out. Like there's a, there's a hierarchy of priorities that we need to understand. With that being said, I, I there's there's a strong argument on the other side. You know, you can look at some situations, and I think we have to all develop as citizens an ability to look at the other side and see that there's some reason in it. Sometimes you may not agree with it, but I can look at some of the other like some of the positions of a, a opposing political side and go, okay, there's an argument there. And I think that's when you can begin dialogue is when you're able to understand a dialogue, you know, the position of the other side versus just going it's absolutely absurd and you're always wrong. You know, I think there's a strong argument for going back into business and i'll tell you why if we don't if the economy doesn't get going again we're going to have a coronavirus plus a great depression that's i think that's a very strong argument and i think a great depression will be far more damaging than just a coronavirus by itself and because some people think of a great depression it's only financially damaging a great depression is not only financially damaging. we're talking about violence going up we're talking about uh you know obviously the financial instability Death rates will go up because if people are broke, they're going to consume less medicine. They're going to eat as healthy. All these other problems that come from something like that. With that being said, I think we got to be responsible. We're, as BJJ practitioners, we're in a very unique position because our our sport is the opposite of social distancing. Right? It's the opposite. It's social closure. <laughs> it's, it's being tightly you know, knit with your, you know, and rolling around with, with your friends on the mats. It's, it's the opposite. You're literally breathing into each other's face the whole time. So I, I think that it's, I think we have to, the hospital's got to, you know, make an effort to have the beds and the ventilators. I really appreciate the medical community. I know they're making a huge effort to come out with a vaccine. But the truth of the matter is we're all going to be out of business in a month if we don't get back to work. Yeah. And, and and that to me, I'm 100% dependent. The selfish Rob, you know, just wants to say, let's 100% open the gym. But the social, socially responsible Rob does see that there's an argument. With that being said, one more thing before I, I finish, I think that you can't apply as a universal standard to lockdowns. And I'll tell you why. Look at the numbers in New York, and then you look at the numbers in Nevada. They're not the same, right? Like we're, I feel like we're applying the same standards everywhere. In New York, the numbers have been through the roof. I think there's a stronger case for a lockdown in New York. In Nevada, I don't even know anyone who's had coronavirus. I don't know anyone who knows anyone. I'm not, I'm, I know it's happening, but the death rates in Nevada have been very low compared to most places. I mean, at least New York, you know, which is what I'm, you know, what I've been looking into. But I think at some point we're we're it's either that or it's the death of BJJ because I don't think this thing is going away. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, and some of the smarter people that I've spoken to have, have said the same thing to me, that in, that we need to start looking at things in, in, in regional aspects and municipality aspects to decide, okay, well, this region has not been affected as drastically. So in turn, we need to start going back into things gradually at first. And, and unfortunately, jiu-jitsu, you know, as, as, as much as all of us want to say that jiu-jitsu is essential to our lives, you know, it is because we love jiu-jitsu. But at the end of the day, like, None of us are going to die if we can't do jujitsu next week. And it, it, the one thing that upsets me the most is when I see you guys talking about, oh, I, I deserve the jujitsu. It's my right to do jujitsu. And I get that. But you're yeah. putting yourself at risk and harm's way in order to do that. Yeah. So what we need to start doing is thinking about it in a regional aspect in order to say, okay, cool, this city, particular city, okay, they're not getting infected as hard. So let's take this and move on a little bit more from there because well, – 
you know, you saw stuff like considerations like that with like when Flavio put out the uh, Gracie Baja like reopening initiative and he, he dictated how schools were going to be asked to uh, operate classes for a while in a region by region basis. People are understanding that different states are going to have different standards and different um, requirements given like population density and even regional, like, like within a state might have different, uh, different things it needs to worry about. Uh, it's, it's definitely, we're, we're getting into the dog days though. It seems like a lot of people are getting antsy. You had like the rice brothers in, I think California, was it that just yeah. straight up reopening? <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't, I don't think it's, like I said, there is a strong argument, you know, and it, it, the freedom argument is, because freedom is such a complex word. We drop it left, right, and center. But there's it's a big word. It's not a small word. And it has inclusive is the thing that people forget. Yeah, exactly. Freedom, my freedom ends when yours begins, right? So I we're talking about a virus here. It's not okay, if I'm willing to risk my own life, I think that should be my choice. I I actually believe that that's how much I believe in freedom. If I want to risk my own life, that is my decision. I'm an adult, I'm not a child. With that being said, a virus is something that you can't stop it from being carried away. So when you expose yourself to other people, you are infringing on their freedom. Maybe they don't want to be exposed, right? So uh, because only that, when these people go home, they're going to they're gonna see grandma. And grandma doesn't care about jiu-jitsu. She doesn't want jiu-jitsu, but it's going to go to your son that's going to give grandma a hug. And then grandma gets coronavirus. She, she never left the room. Which is someone that may not actually have, because the, the problem with this is you, you can be asymptomatic and still be a carrier and not even realize you're sick and then you spread the disease. I may have had coronavirus this whole I, I, you know, uh, it's, it's a, it's a complicated, look, virus, viruses has been single-handedly the biggest enemy of humankind in history. There has never, not, it hasn't been war. It has, it's been viruses. Like it has killed more people than anything else in history. We've been waging war against viruses for our whole existence. You can go as far back as you want. These things have always been around. They're not going anywhere. There are there's no cure for herpes. There's no cure for HIV. They've been trying this whole year's date. So there's no cure for coronavirus. I'll be blown away if they can find a cure for it. They've never been able to figure out viruses because they mutate too quickly. Now, it's 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 here to stay. We have influenza, it's here to stay. The cold, the cold, how long have we been dealing with the cold? Right. And we can't get rid of it. It's, it's a very similar virus to coronavirus, it, just as a it, It's a it's a deadlier cold. There's right. You know, it, it's not the same thing, obviously, but we just have to get used to it and just move on with our lives. And it's social distancing is the norm. I kind of ruins life in a lot of ways because one of the great things about life, jujitsu aside, forget jujitsu. Let's talk about it. it's human beings. One of the most beautiful things in life is your ability to give your friends and family a hug, interact with your children in a meaningful way. And, you know, you, you shake hand, uh, hands with your friend, you joke around with them, you know, and th I think proximity is very human. I think this social distancing as a, as, a, as a temporary social measure, I understand. But long term, I don't want to live in the world where I can't hug my friends. No, you see not, what I'm, I don't, I don't want to live in that world. So I, at some point, you know, we're going to have to just like accept that this is how things are. Hopefully we'll have a vaccine and we'll understand this virus better moving forward. But I don't want to live in a world where I can't say, you know, I've got to talk to people six feet away and I can't train jiu-jitsu. And that's not so a good thing. So uh, on your Instagram, you were quite vocal about some issues with the government not taking care of small businesses. And, it's, and, it, and it, it has been something that I've been following in general that I feel is definitely systemic and definitely a horrible, horrible thing. Because it's, it's, a, it's a shame 
that guys like yourself that have dedicated their entire lives to something that they love and then built their business up are in fear of losing everything because they can't get the funding. So based upon that, I, I, I just feel like that if the, a government were able to say, okay, cool, we need you guys to stay safe. We're going to lock you guys in your house and we're going to keep you guys away from, from each other. And we're going to expect you to close your businesses down and do all these things. But they also need to give them the money to be able to do that. Cause I personally feel that. And then we can also say that, you know, I'm not even sure that the government is capable of doing that in that approach. This is an unprecedented territory. So not to blame the government hundred percent. I'm not sure that they're capable of being able to do that. But the point is, is I feel like the major issue here isn't that people are getting frustrated because they can't do the things that they want to do. The issues here is the fact that people are legitimately concerned about losing everything they worked every, their whole lives to, to, to accomplish and not being able to feed their family and, 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 and pay their bills. Yeah, I, you know, the, the whole government thing is, is a very, you know, politically loaded issue, especially in the U.S. There's, there's an enormous anti-government movement in the U.S. and it's growing. Everyone's heard of it. Everyone's seen it. And, you know, government is like not one person. You know, government's a lot of people and the government's an even bigger word than freedom. It's, it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of meanings to it, you know, and um, I, I, I welcome the help. The government did extend a little help. I think every business owner on the planet did welcome that help. With that being said, it's not enough. I truly believe that the right thing to do was to freeze all mortgages. And they did that in Italy, from my understanding. Right? Don't quote me on it. It's like, yeah, no, that's, they, they did, yeah. I, and I, I think that's the right thing to do because if there's someone out there that can take the hit, it's big banks. They should have frozen all mortgages, and that would have solved the problems. Now, no one's going to challenge big banks in Washington because they know perfectly well who funds their campaigns. But that would have been the right thing to do because we bailed them out in 2008. Do not forget. Hey, um, Rob, I really hate to interrupt you, but uh, and we might cut this out, but the, the JJT is actually – this podcast is really pro-bank. So, like, if you could, <laughs> like, not hate on the bank. Like, we love it. <laughs> I, I don't give a shit. Turn it down, Rob. I don't give a damn. It's no, it's, no, no, it's no, like political. Don't get him. Like okay, but there's no way we can talk about this without talking about these. Oh no, 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 no. I'm we're joking. We're joking. I know you're not. <laughs> you had me though. And you know we're talking about if they can take the head, we bail them out, and they they messed up, and we bailed them out. When I right. say we, I mean people, right? Taxpayers. So now we have something that's unprecedented, and it's really no one's fault. I don't believe for a second China has anything to do with it. I, I personally think that's yeah, – I, I don't see a label on that. But, um, you know, I think that if there's someone that should be able to take the hit, it's the banks, and at least freeze our mortgages and perhaps extend it. So instead of, you know, ending in, you know, X amount of years, we add three months at the end of the lease. So they're still going to get a little more out of the lease, Right. But we get to freeze our mortgages, right? And the landlords do too because they owe money to the bank. I don't, I don't like to battle my landlord because he's got to pay the bank and he's got bigger bills than me. So I understand where he's coming from. But it's just one of those things where I think this would have been a situation where government intervention would have been legitimate in favor of the American people. The American people would have benefited from the government stepping in and doing the right thing. So there are instances where the government should step in, in my opinion, and this is one of them. And they should step in and say, I'm sorry, but we're not going to have the poor Americans foot the bill because right now that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I think of it in this regard, and, and it's something I've seen a few times, like, you know, as small business owners and as, as you know, average citizens, you know, we're supposed to be able to take care of ourselves two months without any income. And like, but unfortunately, like these multinational conglomerates, like, oh, there's no way, oh, no, no way we can take two months off because everything will fall apart. 
it's it's an attack on capitalism too for like for the cat like that, that you can't speak of capitalism when you have big banks being protected by the government being bailed out by the government not to mention lobbying not to mention the amount of things that goes on behind our backs that we don't even know of that we can't back up but that we all know that happens all these closed door deals and things that are happening the behind the scenes you know but like the people pay the brunt of it it's always been the case oh, so especially especially when you think about the businesses that like the smaller businesses that can survive without um for a few months with that with no income but what is that survival like no matter what there's going to be layoffs there's going to be people yeah. that are sent home and they're not earning a paycheck and they can't take the hit no matter what so it's it's there's a lot of and, and it's almost like a, a problem and you know and this is i think it's more in the u.s than other countries I've, you know i've lived in brazil and i've traveled the world like you know anyone who criticizes big business and big banks in the u.s is seen as a hater oh you're just hating because they do a good job and i'm like i'm not a hater i i'm not there's no hate but like I, I do believe in fairness and justice and the system is rigged we all know that it's not it's that it's it's a trickle up economy I think Kevin used that term very, very, apt, you know, aptly at that moment. Like it's a trickle up economy. It's not a trickle down economy. And what I think the coronavirus is an expression. This is a moment where the government could have legitimately stepped in to help Americans. And they're not going to because they don't want to stand up to big banks. Yeah, but, I, I personally believe that the government, sorry, sorry, Rob. I, I personally yeah, believe the government just wants us to all go back to work. And they're, they're hella, hella high water. They've accepted the fact that, okay, you know, people are going to die. This is what's going to happen. We just need to get back out there and move along because they're so concerned about. And I understand, like, again, I am by no means an economist, so I should not be speaking on this. But I'm, I'm sure there are grander repercussions to not having the banks having those mortgage dollars coming in, which will extend out to credit lines and other things that I don't really True. understand. True. But at the end of the day, I really believe that part of the reason why we're in the situation and the biggest reason we're in the situation is because people are legitimately concerned about how they're going to get their next meal on their table or they're going to lose everything to have. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're talking about that. Like, and, you know, once people don't you know we're, we're completely out of money because we had a bonanza for the last three years, life was pretty good. Economy was doing well. So everyone has some savings. And I really feel everyone's been living off those savings for the last two months. How long is that going to last? And when people run out of money completely, what's then next? Then it gets, then it gets bad. It's it gets, and that's way worse than coronavirus. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that social repercussions of something like that, like riots, people stealing food and breaking into houses to steal water and food. Can you believe that? But that's yeah. what we're going to be. It's going to happen. We've seen yeah. it throughout history. We'd be kidding ourselves if we think that something like that couldn't happen again. But it all comes down to, you know, can we get back to work and when? And is it going to be safe? And no one really has a good answer. Kevin, I, I really feel that that's the that's the main issue. We don't. No one knows for sure what the correct thing to do is. I just I think that at some point, you know, we're going to have to get back to work. A Great Depression is worse than coronavirus. Yeah, we have to. I, I, I've been saying this because I in the beginning stages, I was I was no way. We're all going to die. Lock the houses, you know. And I I I, I was also dealing with a concussion. Well, so to I was be, losing to my mind be a fair, bit to be fair, I don't think any state was more horrified at the beginning of this than Florida, where Kevin you <laughs> live, because right at the beginning you had spring breakers ignoring the go ignoring all the news and still going to like and don't go into the beach and just like going, and man, we we gotta. Still party, we're young, man. <laughs> I, I, I just hope I, I, I 100% and firmly believe that now we, I said two months when it first went down, we're about halfway through the second month now. I firmly believe I would have liked to give it another two weeks, but I would firmly believe now that it's time to start 
seeing what happens. We have to start opening things back up again. We have to start cautiously renewing the cycle of the economy before we get to a point to where it all just falls apart. Because just like you said, the the the, the cure is probably going to be worse than the disease. Yeah. I so I have I got I got a few more questions for you. we I just along the, the same the same topic. So I I uh I I've been are they are they more you know I know we're primarily about jujitsu show but I love more macroeconomic questions. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, let, let, let me go check out my my met my multiple degrees in economics. Rob, so what's your explain. what's your opinion on the unemployment rate? You know, let's go into that. <laughs> I, I got tons of opinions, not all of them. Are informed. <laughs> very so, opinionated, not always informed. So I have been teaching like very small limited sessions over the last two weeks at my house i've got some mats that i brought to my house that i'm throwing down in my backyard three or four guys that have been teaching i've been teaching private lessons to that i've been working with for a long time and 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 what i found was is there was a certain sense of returning to what i feel like jujitsu really is about um so like i think that we live in a world right now where we're experiencing a massive growth in the explosion of jiu-jitsu, I call it the modern jiu-jitsu renaissance. It's been amazing over the last three years with competition jiu-jitsu, gyms exploding, these mega gyms where guys are so uber-focused on building their their, their, their their gyms up and the business aspects of it. And I feel like I don't think I don't think it's completely 100%, but I feel like maybe we might have lost a little bit, a little bit of reality of what we all do this for. For the first place is the beauty and the power of what jujitsu really means. And when, when I when I when I taught a few of these small little lessons in my backyard with four dudes on mats thrown down underneath an oak tree, like I really felt like I was returning to what I know jujitsu really is about. What do you think about things like that? Do you what do you think about the current place that jujitsu is in dealing with all these? you know, enormous uh, competition, com- competitor egos and, and people trying to work on building their, their industries up. Very well put, Kevin. I have never seen it that way, but I completely see what you're saying. And I agree. That's no one who does jujitsu started doing jujitsu because they dreamed of having a gym with a thousand students. No one who starts training jujitsu, train, start training jujitsu because they dreamed of being a champion and popular on the internet or, this or that. I think everyone who starts starts for, for the right reasons, right? I think you know it might be originally self defense or fitness, but I think that 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 the first thing that you really fall in love with is the camaraderie on the mats, right? It's that the fist bump and the hug and seeing your brothers and sisters and the and the rolling man, like the the the, the endorphins you get from the rolling. Where do you replace that? Where do you find that? You don't get that anywhere else, you know. And I think. That the, the community aspect of it, right, that brotherhood you're describing of rolling around under an oak tree with a bunch of buddies and not and just removing the business side of it is a very, very beautiful place. I've been there. That has been the vast majority of my jiu-jitsu experience. Once you become a business owner, things change because now you're signing contracts. Now you're signing. And there's no – it's the nature of the game. Like I've thought so much about this, Kevin, where I go – is there a way where I can may remain 100% true to my passion and still make money? And I can't find a way because the second you start signing contracts and you got bills to pay, and it's a competitive world out there. So you have to have a, you have to learn SEO. You think I like learning about SEO? <laughs> you think I like Facebook campaigns? You think that's what I signed <laughs> up for when I started training jujitsu? I just wanted to be the baddest guy on the mat. I just wanted to choke people out and have them like, go on, you want to choke me out? I'm going to choke you out, you know? And, that right there, man, I loved it. I love it. So it's, 
it's that's what got me high, you know. And they were my brothers. It was never personal. Like afterwards, boom, I, you know, I got you. I got your acai, man. You you get me next time. <laughs> we're not. We're we're you know. It's become overly business oriented in some ways, and I feel like in some ways we were only becoming some of the traditional martial arts that we used to criticize twenty years ago. In some ways, BJJ was becoming that. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can fight like 12-year-olds getting promoted to black belt, and you can fight blue belts online. I think we won those two battles. But the community is still going to watch you know, BJJ become an ever more business-oriented art. And the coronavirus, for you know, in, in some ways, it had some positive effects. And I think it was a reawakening of that. I think you're absolutely correct. Because I do the same. I have a small group that I do privates with here and there. And it's a very different feel. It's a different kind of energy. You know, um, in a perfect world, man, I would much rather that. But in that world, I don't get paid. Uh, I can't pay my mortgage. Right. It's I can't. You know, I'm going to have to. I'll be, on, I'll be riding a bicycle for the rest of my life. And I think that's noble. I know people who chose that route. They have 15 students, maybe 20. They ride a bike and they live with their parents. And they're 40 years old. I know those people. I know those people in Brazil. And I admire them. Like, oh, you're lazy. No, I admire them because they stayed true to the art. Like, they never wanted like, It was all about the art. Maybe a little lack of work ethic, too. I think there's a little bit of that, too, in those cases. But, you know, I, I, it, there was something very pure about it. You know, they, they never wanted to become marketing experts. And I can't be that guy because I got bills to pay, man. I got to pay child support. I got mortgage. I got rent. I can't. But I, I like that. I think that is, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful side of jiu-jitsu. And it still exists in big business. But like once you put money in there, it's, it, it does take a little bit of the shine of the beauty of the art in and of itself as a, as a means, as an end in itself, not a means to an end. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you that it doesn't have to be separate. And, and I'll tell you why. And, and, and I think because when I think about jujitsu and what I think is the beautiful part of jujitsu that separates it from every other aspect, every other martial art out there is the fact that we compete at a high level. We roll every day at levels that simulate what real life fighting is going to be like. And you just can't do that in other situations. You can't do that in other, in other, in other martial arts. And through that, those bonds that you spoke of develop. The idea of growth develops. The idea of watching someone's. I always say that. So jujitsu is one of the few things in the world that will make the strong meek, and and the meek strong. And it's it's the there's the beauty in that. And I watch it continually over and over and over again. And guys like yourself, because I've been to your gym. I know you grow a big gym, and I know you got to market. I know you got to do all the things. And when. And, the world of jiu-jitsu has changed. We're not dealing with the 90s where you just threw everybody in a room. The, the strong survive, and if you're weak, you get your ass kicked and you, and you left. You know, we have, we have uh, you know, things in place to maintain membership. So guys that come in, you know, the weaker guys, you know, they, they, they end up staying because we don't just throw them to the wolves. They're the best the, members. Yeah, they're the best members. Exactly. I, I will never, even at major schools like yourself, as long as they're still live rolling, you're never getting away from what makes jujitsu so great. I agree. Yeah. That's a very good point because it is what makes it real. And I always joke around the coronavirus introduced us to the two things we hate the most in jujitsu, or for not introduced, but forces you like the warm ups and the technique. Those are the two things. <laughs> I fucking hate it. Oh, I would, I would add a third one. I would add a third one, and that's taking time off for injury. Because <laughs> a lot you of know, us. Exactly. You know, but like what we like in the gym are the two things that we fall in love with is the rolling, the endorphins you get from rolling. You can't replace that. You can go to the gym and bench press all day, run on the treadmill. It's not the same high. It's a different kind of high. And 
and the other thing is we like to see our friends, man. Like there's this, this social bonds we create in there, like this, the, 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 the camaraderie of being in, a, in an environment where you can joke around with your friends and they can mess around with you. And you, those are your buddies and you get, you don't get to see them. You see them on zoom. Now it's not the same, you know, right. we're making that human touch is something that we've lost with the rolling and we're stuck with positions and warmups. And I, I was never too optimistic about like the online classes because I've been in jiu-jitsu long enough to know why people come to the gym, and it's right. not for technique. You yeah. know, it, it's well beyond that. There's a certain I, I teach a few uh, a few online classes at math school, and you know, and, and what I've noticed is just like you said, like I fuck, I'm doing the one thing. I, when I teach a class, when I teach a class, we don't even fucking warm. We don't even fucking warm up. <laughs> I want to <laughs> talk. I, I'm I'm a professor. I want I, I enjoy the audience. I want people to hang off of every word because I earned that. I've earned that right to be respected in that manner. And plus, I hate warm ups, but. What I'm doing is Zoom classes, like literally like 60% of it is me doing push-ups and sit-ups and doing shit. Like what in the hell am I doing this for? But there's also that idea of guys are together. Like it's – and again, it's not the same, but at least we can get online. When I have people on my Zoom classes, I'll laugh at, hey, what's up, Tony? How you doing? Oh, those those push-ups look like shit, you know, and it's it's fun. So it's it's not the same, but it kind of agrees. Not the same, but they, it, it does keep it together in a very, very dire moment in, in our history. But I think that, yeah, long term, I don't know if it's if I don't know, I don't know if it's sustainable is what I'm trying to say. Right. I don't yeah. I think short term. Yes. Long term. It's not in one year. Can anyone see students still paying a membership if we're not back to normal? No, <laughs> no way. Yeah. We're, we're like another month or two here. Top. I, I don't yeah. know. After that, I, you know. What are you going to do? I think we're going to start to see some of your hardcore diehards that will figure out a way for as long as they can still do it, as long as the economy doesn't completely tank. They will figure out a way to help to keep the gyms going. But I'm concerned about particularly new memberships. And, and if anyone that owns a gym understands that you don't – you don't you, the people you got ain't going nowhere. You got to worry about getting new people in because you've got that up to the blue belt level that's constantly recycling in and out. I think we're going to start losing those guys, which is the unfortunate side effect because they haven't been a lot around long enough to truly appreciate. Yeah, honestly, I I'm only a first degree blue belt and I'm about to quit jujitsu, man. Yeah, like, I you're not even human my, to me anymore. I Kevin, told myself, I told myself I'm not going to be the blue belt that quits, but like you know, now I'm kind of thinking I got to be the blue belt that quits. <laughs> Roman is the perfect excuse, right? You just go, hey, it's coronavirus. I can't roll anymore. That's why I quit. No, I got I got the best out. I got for all the I gotta do it for all the blue belts that quit without a good excuse. Like this is my time. I gotta do it for them. No, but um while coronavirus is definitely taking over our lives in the in the midterm, just in terms of like combat sports we're seeing it slowly come back and for and like UFC is able to have events, you know, they've got the they're doing their testing and we're we're getting some fights on the cards that people are are really excited about i know i'm going to be watching this weekend so there there is an end to this and i think it's important to keep reiterating that even though it's very it's very bizarre you know it's still it still feels very bizarre but rob you have uh, there's more going on in the world than uh, the worst pandemic that any of us will hopefully live through. Uh, in addition to being a black belt, you've uh, before the virus, you started work on a uh, a documentary film regarding the origins of jujitsu, uh, Closed Guard, and we were hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about that while you were here. Yeah, sure. Um, 
you know, I, I, I'm a history major. Uh, it was always my, it was like my original passion. Like when I was a child, I wanted to be an archaeologist. That's all I wanted to do was read encyclopedias and books on ancient civilizations. Like that was my, that was a very nerdy child. That and Lord <laughs> of Rings. But, um, you know, at some point, Jiu-Jitsu took over my life. And then like it was just like, like nothing else matters. And I, I didn't major in history in Brazil. I tried transferring over my, my, my uh, to UNLV. I did two years for a master's program here at UNLV. And there's some bureaucratic issue that I still don't understand. Like academics is a very, very bureaucratic endeavor. But it's something I've always enjoyed. Um, I like history. I like to tell history accurately. I think it's important to record history accurately because it's cliche to say but understanding the past helps you better understand the future you have a better understanding of the sport now you know and the future of the sport if you understand its past and everything we have always heard of regarding jiu-jitsu history all comes down to one person every website every wikipedia page every interview every book you've ever read with like two or three exceptions everything out there all comes back to one person the person who had everything to give to gain from a given narrative, namely Carlos Gracie. Now, Carlos Gracie was there. He was important. He played a very significant role. No one can deny that. But like the story he told is a little what we, we what we've been handed down. The official oral tradition narrative has been a little bit distorted. It, it omitted a few characters, and I think that you know we wanted to correct that. So the goal was always like, how can we tell this history? accurately like there's some academic work out there there's some really good work out there that people can reference you take a look at and that was sort of like the inspiration for the documentary because i knew that we weren't gonna you know there's official narrative on one side and then there's the academic work on the other right how do you bridge these two it's a very difficult thing to do because the official narrative has been so ingrained in the, the psyche of martial artists around the world the last 30 years that how do you how do you get that out of them? Like how do you convince them that like over the last thirty years, well, everything we've been we've known about jujitsu is wrong, or not everything, but at least good big, big chunks of it. And it was hard to do, you know, because academic work is not something people are going to read. People don't like to read dense books on jujitsu history. So we thought maybe a film we could bridge that gap, right? We can make create a bridge between the audience, the martial arts enthusiasts, and the the work that's out there, the things that we do know about jiu-jitsu history that are fairly recent. It's important to remember that. The reason there's been this renaissance in jiu-jitsu history is because Brazilian National Library digitized their files about eight years ago. Prior to that, there was close to no research because there was you have to physically go to the, the National Library and the archives and dig through thousands of files and 100 years worth of newspapers. That's not a lot of fun to do, man. But once they digitized all the files, now we have access to all this information. You can become a researcher yourself, and it's not that hard to do. It's just very time consuming. So I mean, I gotta brush. I gotta brush up on my Portuguese first. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> like th I mean, there's there's that. Like you 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 have to learn Portuguese if you're really serious about it. You're gonna have to learn Japanese and Spanish, and I mean, it can get really really complex. Fortunately, there are other people who have done this. Right, people like Roberto Pedreira, Marcial Serrano, Jose Cairos, uh, Tufi Cairos. There's some people that some really cool work out there, and they inspire the film. I wanted to bridge that 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 gap, right? And it turned out to be a lot more work than I ever anticipated. It turned out to be uh, a lot of learning lessons. Like I think that I've 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 absorbed a lot. I've grown a lot as as a person going through this process because it made me rethink jujitsu in a lot of ways. I learned something about film and. 
I got to travel some really cool places. I'm actually writing a book on it, like my experience making the film and the stuff, the behind the stuff, the scene stories and all that. I think people will enjoy it because there's a lot of content that's not going to make it to the film, but is really relevant. Um, and then we're going to use that. I'm going to use that in the book. So that should be ready within a month or two. That's sort of like the plan. And um, documentary should be out uh, this summer that we're aiming for this summer. So we're very close. We have a, a cut. We're just missing music and some animation and translation. So with those pieces in place, we should be ready to rock and roll, hopefully, this summer. That's what we're aiming for. So I have a quick little question for you, because I, I enjoy deeply the, the historical timelines of jiu-jitsu. It's something that I really like to nerd out on and, 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 and talk about. And to the best of my knowledge, there seems to be two timelines or stories and i know there's other factions that come off of that but you know with fada and some of the other people in the early days but it seems to me that there are two different timelines that tell two different distinct stories about the history and the origins of jujitsu and they seem to fall on the halio gracie timeline versus the carlos gracie timeline is that accurate in saying that yeah well it's it's i like to think of history don't think of history as we learn history in a linear fashion right because it's easier to understand that way but think of history as a bush it's intertwined it's it's condensed it's it's not it's not as straightforward um as, as it seems the problem with helio is that helio's narrative like changes a little bit over the years you know first everything thanks to carlos and then he learned by watching and then he invented it I think after Hori and Gracie, like Helio became more, I get the impression he became a little more self-centered and giving his brother a lot less credit. But even his brother had made the same mistakes. His brother never gave Donato any credit, never gave Jacinto any credit, never gave Gio Mori any credit, right? And these are all people who taught him at some point, most likely, at least in the case of Jacinto, for sure. In the case of Donato and Gio Mori, like very, very likely they taught Carlos as well. Um, and, and there's some conflicting narratives within the family. They're not, uh, they're not in, you know, exactly agreeing on how these things developed. And if you want to really get down to it, both narratives are incorrect. Like the whole thing, Carlos versus Hill. They're both because, first of all, the family was always more united, from my understanding. You know, it's a family. They fight. But, you know, there was no conflict between Helio and Carlos at any point. It was only later because Horian was the first one to tell the story. He favored his lineage, right? My father, therefore, when my father passes away, guess who's the patriarch? The oldest son, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then later, Hela writes the biography of her father, which is a really good book, like in terms of like, opening up to the family dynamics and how the family related to jiu-jitsu. It's got some really cool stories. But on the historical side, it's large. There's a lot of inaccuracies. Uh, it's largely largely oral tradition from family members and family friends. So it's not a very reliable source in historical terms. Even though I think Kayla should be lauded for she she was to her from her understanding she was being very honest and she does open up and talks a lot about Carlos's personal life and you get a better glimpse of who Carlos was as a, as an individual and he was far more than just someone interested in jujitsu. He was, you know, he had a very spiritual side to him. He was, he was really into diets, as we all know that. And there was like a, another aspect of his personality that is very, how can I say it, um, esoteric. Like he was into the unnatural, you know, and the well, the supernatural and things like that. Um, and and Hale is very honest. Like she even, I mean, if you ask, like you know, 
I, I suspect some family members aren't too happy about how much she gave away. I think most family members would have been would have preferred had her remain silent in the book. Uh, but a lot of the, the historical period that I'm most interested in, which is Maeda and Belay and that first stage, you know, those first 20, 30 years of jiu-jitsu from the 19-teens to the 1940s, which is pretty much where our documentary takes place, it's a lot more obscure. And, and in that regard, Hela is largely inaccurate. Like, she has no sources. It's all based on her father's testimony. Ro Robert, I, I want to interrupt you just because I want to make sure that the viewers at home know who Hela is because I'm honestly a little bit confused by it myself. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. So, hey, I'm sorry. I, I this, <laughs> you're so far into the rabbit hole with this. You assume everyone. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I'm sorry. Uh, Hala Gracie is the daughter of Carlos Gracie Senior. She okay. is sister to Carlos Gracie Junior. She is mother to Roger Gracie. Everyone knows Roger. That's his mom. Mm -hmm. She writes a biography of her father, Carlos Gracie, called Carlos Gracie, uh, o criador de uma dinastia. And it's a really good book. I highly recommend it. Um, I just like in historical terms, there are a lot of inaccuracies in there. I think some things that we factually we know that are factually incorrect and a lot of omissions. And but I think that given that she was only using family testimonies and family friends, you know, and, and their testimonies, I think she did a pretty good job. I just you gotta, but you can't read that without reading Shockey. Like that's where it's at. You read Shockey in English, it's gonna be Shockey. It's available on Amazon, C-H-O-Q-U-E. And craze, craze, C R A Z E, both by Roberto Pedreira. And if you read Portuguese, you want to read Marcial Serrano, pretty much. And then, you know, that's where it's at in, in historical terms. There's also Kairos's uh, uh, PhD dissertation, the the Gracie clan and the making of Brazilian nationalism. I think is the title of his dissertation. It's a it's his PhD dissertation for York University, and it's a really good read. And he writes that before the digitizing of the National Library, so he has some very unique sources there. But it's available online as well if you guys want to read that. I highly recommend it. And But those will be the more accurate uh, interpretations of BJJ history. Uh, the rest of it is just basically, you know, crazy family members, you know, oral tradition and, and testimonies, which, you know, at, at the very the best case scenario, they're suspicious. So to the best of your knowledge, who do you think are the original students of Maeda? Well, we, we, we know that factually. That's not something that's controversial, you know, but because the names are repeated in the press so many times. Like if I, if I go back to that period, the late 19-teens and early 20s, there are five names that are constantly mentioned. Jacinto Ferro. Valdemar, uh, uh, Valdemar Lopes, Rafael, no, Valdemar Gomes, Rafael Lopes, Guilherme de la Roque, and Dr. Matheus Pereira. Those five names are constantly repeated in the press during that time. They had a very close relationship with Maeda, especially Jacinto Ferro, which was Maeda's right-hand guy at the time. Maeda, you got to remember, he's retired when he goes to Brazil. He's not interested in fighting. He has his students fighting instead of him. Every time someone challenges him, he just goes, no, fight one of my students. He becomes a diplomat. He's a he's a man of he's worked with Japanese immigration. He's accused of being a spy on multiple occasions, which I always like to mention because I think it's very interesting. You know, given Japan imperial ambitions at the time, you know, he go he was accused in the United States, he was accused in Cuba, and he was accused in Brazil, three different places, accused of the exact same thing. But he's involved with politics at this period of his life. He's not interested in teaching. It's very very clear he's older. You know, so his role in Brazil is actually very exaggerated. You know, it grow. I, I like to say that actually, Cobson Gracie was the one who said this. It wasn't. It wasn't Maeda who created Carlos. It was Carlos who created Maeda. 
You know, if it weren't for Carlos, no one had ever heard of Maeda because when he's in Brazil, he's practically retired. You know, he doesn't have an active role, but those five Brazilians would have an active role. There's another man that appears in the story later on called Donato Pires dos Reis, and he's the one that's going to have a relationship to Carlos. Donato claimed to be to have a diploma for Maeda. No one ever saw the diploma. We don't know if it's true. Apparently, he did walk around with a piece of paper because we have at least one journalist talking about the piece of paper, but we don't know what it actually was. Uh, but, you know, what everything suggests is this man had a sort of, there's a hierarchy that is, you know, very clearly he outranked Carlos uh, in the, at, at that time. So at, at the very least, we have just Cinto and Donato as Carlos' instructors and very likely Gio Amori as well. I just, uh, real quick, I just imagine uh, Maeda, his correspondence to the emperor. Uh, uh, my lord, I my, my spy mission is going well. I'm, I'm covering my tracks by teaching judo, but I don't think it'll really mean anything. I just, you know. <laughs> it's, it's a great front. <laughs> yeah, like they're, these guys, they're from Scotland, I think. You know, like I'm just kind of, I'm just sort of shooting the shit with them. It's not really a big deal. <laughs> and here's the problem. I, I only mention it because it's all speculation, right? There's yeah. no physical evidence. But I do think it's interesting that he's accused in three different places of the same thing, you know, independently. How many times have you been accused of being a spy? This week? Zero. <laughs> I'm not like, a Japanese national, though, either. So and, that's a little bit. The Kodokan members, they were associated with Japanese ultra-nationalism during that period, and Japanese mm -hmm. did have imperial ambitions to expand through the Pacific well beyond Hawaii. So the Amazon is not an unlikely place for them to have their eyesights on given their natural resources of uh, of the amazon and how you know japanese ultranationalism has a feeling of japan is too small for us we belong in we belong in the world right that was sort of the, the spirit of the age at least so i don't think it's an unreasonable speculation i think there's some there's some you know that there, there's it is possible but then fortunately there's nothing physical out there but i do think it's super interesting if i had the time i'd pursue something like that because to me that's fascinating so i have a particular question for you not, not that i don't enjoy this historical stuff it's really good but i i want i want something that's maybe based on historical but can, can start to go into to current uh discussion too and it's basically because i base listening upon your ridiculous knowledge of jujitsu it's it's something that i feel like you may be one of the more credible people in the world to be able to answer and maybe it's a generic question but i don't care i'm gonna ask you anyway who do you believe to be the real goat of jiu-jitsu someone that you can look at and say and it doesn't even have to be a single person you can you could preface this by saying a few different people if you like and maybe you've got one in mind what do you what do you believe to be someone that really embodies what be the the, the greatest jiu-jitsu practice and if you can time? if you can help it don't say hickson by armbar like we're <laughs> like you, you can say it but we'll be disappointed <laughs> no here's the thing i i, I think that the, the, that's everyone i get that question all the time it's a constant theme you know um it, it, it goes back to that linear view of things. And if you're in a linear way, you can, you can, you can create a hierarchy, number one, two, and three, right? And it, it depends. first of all, we have to agree on what jiu-jitsu is. And we don't, we don't always agree on what jiu-jitsu is. IBJJF rules, ADCC rules. Gi, no gi. All right, e EBI overtime rules go. <laughs> you could do this, for example, if you're going to stay like, for example, ADCC, who's the best of all time? We can narrow it down is what I'm saying. But it's such a broad thing. I... I think that the standard answer is Roger Gracie, and I think that that would be the standard. But I think that's unfair with Bruno Malfacini, right. who's a rooster weight and has won 12 world titles in one right. division. That's Bushish has like 13, I think, but that's two divisions. 
Bruno's got 12 and one. Yeah. And you know, dude, you got any idea how hard it is to win a world title at the black belt level? He's got 12 in a row. That's insane. It's insane. It's insane. Like, so many you know, things have to – people don't realize that, because particularly IBJJF. It's so difficult to win in the IBJJF. You literally, like, unless you're that ridiculous outlier, you have to have a few calls go your way, particularly at the highest level. You, you got to have an advantage kind of flop. You got to have a referee kind of, like, look to you and say, okay, it's a coin flip. But here's yeah, the like, how, many do how many times has Keenan been screwed over? You know, like, that's, like, a big famous <laughs> I, thing I will, at this point. I will say this, because I I've actually wrote an article about this a while ago. Um, I don't think there's a, a conscious bias. What I do think is – People make mistakes. I, and I, I speak this. I really feel like I'm neutral here because I'll, I'll tell you guys a true story. You guys are going to think this is crazy, but it's a true story. When I was in Brazil about two, three years ago, maybe more. I can't remember when. Um, I would barbecue, shuhasco with my friends. I meat and beer. That's all they do. And they, they joke around a lot, a lot of laughing. And some somehow the conversation got on about the UFC. And they were talking about how the UFC judges were all pro-Americans and anti-Brazilians. And I go, I don't think so. And they're like, they look at me like, what? No, I think that the judges are neutral. I don't think they're anti-Brazilian. I don't think they're pro-American. They were literally, I was the joke of the barbecue for the next 20 to 30 minutes. Everyone stopped and were making fun of me, of my outlandish claim that the UFC judges were neutral, right? I think that they make mistakes, right? Um, I personally, I, I don't think that IBJF is pro-Brazilian. I, 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 I grew up in Brazil. I competed there hundreds of times. I, I got screwed plenty. I never felt that I was screwed because I was American, even if maybe they consider me Brazilian, whatever the case. I do think that, you know, um, I can see where Keenan is coming from. I can see I, he's been screwed, but I've seen him win decisions too. You know, no one remembers those, but I've seen him win decisions too with a Brazilian ref. I'm like, it's, a big, it's kind of like confirmation bias thing, you know. Brazilians are not nationalists. I'm telling you this right now. Like, Brazilians don't know how to sing their national anthem for the most part, and they don't care about women. <laughs> They're, they're really not, and I can say this being half Brazilian, like they, they don't, it's not like, it's not something like, oh, Brazil's got to win. Um, I think that IBJJF rules are excessively complex. I think that has been a mistake. That's something I need to clean up. And it makes for a lot of, it leaves too much power to the referees. I can see biases in terms of friendship and team. I could see that a little bit. As far as nationalism go, I, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to say no, but I mean, I, I'm not in the referee's head, so I don't know. But uh, I think that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things about IBJF that they need to change, and you know I'm, I've been I've been critical of a lot of their things in, in over the years, and there's some things they do right in my opinion. They do a lot of things that are right as well. It's just that you know they um, I think that being a referee is not an easy job, man. Like I've refereed before, I do not like that job. I you have to pay me a fortune to ever do that again. Like those guys getting paid a hundred dollars a day, two hundred dollars a day, and they're standing for eight hours straight, getting people, you know, people yell at them, and it's, you know, and a lot of them. Here's the problem. Here's the, here's the biggest problem. Most of them are not that well trained because they have so many competitions, and it's hard to train referees, and it's hard, you know, maybe if they paid them better, maybe that would be a solution. But it's not. It's it's not easy, man. There's like half a dozen referees out there that I really trust, and the other ones I'm always like, oh shit, here we go. <laughs> 
you know, Guys, next next time you next time you have a match, Kevin Gallagher is your ref. <laughs> <laughs> I've I'm, I'm a damn good ref, damn it. I've ref I've ref quite a few matches. No, but I, I for, as someone that has been a referee before, I 100 percent agree with you. And I've been to a, bu- a bunch of uh, of IBGF matches, and I will say this: I feel like in the echelon of matches, the IBGF match, I don't care what anybody says. I feel like the refs at the IBGF are the best, just because they've been doing it for I, so long. They're the best, and and they still fuck up a lot, but they but, are compared to what's out there. Hey, man, do you guys watch ADCC the last one? Yeah. It's rough. They, they do a decent job, but they're so inconsistent. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Man, like they're so inconsistent. Like, yeah. what is it? It's like they're winging it. Yeah. And it's Matt- crazy because the, the pedigree is about the same, you know, for a lot of people. They would think it would be that the referee would be even better. And then, like, they're really lo- rolling on concrete. And the rest yeah. of the is like this and are on concrete. Yeah, they don't know when nobody knows when to stop. Nobody knows. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I approached one, I'm not going to mention who, like a senior member. And I asked him, hey, man, you guys going to do something about this, you know? And then he got mad at me and he goes, our referees have 10 years' experience. And I'm thinking to myself, that means they've left five times their whole lives. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Maybe, maybe twelve if you if you include the uh, if you include the uh, the qualifiers. Yeah, exactly. So we're we're talking about we're talking about people that have they're basically white belts. And I don't want to insult or attack anyone, but there was clearly a problem that it was in terms of refereeing. It was the worst I have ever seen in my entire life. I have organized small tournaments in Brazil, guys, with like 80 competitors, and the refereeing was better than that. Okay. Like, I have, like the most ghetto tournaments in the world. Have I, I, I was shocked on how the double standards was, were, were through and through all over the place. Like no criteria whatsoever. I have one more question for you because I got to get going. I got a bunch of stuff I got to do still, but I'm enjoying this conversation. I wish I had more time because you're awesome. Um, so – Again, we have seen a recent explosion in sport jujitsu that has, you know, for better or for worse, it's at least it's putting people involved in jujitsu. People are watching and they're enjoying jujitsu. But we've seen so many different rule sets and so many different variations and so many different people to say, well, submission only is the only true way to show who's the better jujitsu. No, 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 no. Points matches are more more similar to what a real life fight is going to be like. And my question to you is this. What do you believe in your heart of hearts really shows who is going to be the better jiu-jitsu practitioner? And is there a format that we can even do that with? Well, first of all, the answer to that last question is everyone believes that their rule set is the right one. Right. So I believe that too. Right. My rule set, the one I like, is the best one. So everyone's got their own belief. I'm joking. Here. Like Everyone right. believes that their rule set is the best one. This is an interesting question because it goes back to the documentary and the split between judo and jiu-jitsu. Brazilian jiu-jitsu split off of judo for very similar reasons that we're watching now. We can't agree on the rules anymore. And once we start, stop agreeing on the rules, you know, you have two different sports. But I think that, it, like in politics, this happens a lot in politics. So you have a, a problem here, and everyone's enraged with this problem. What is everyone's solution to the problem? Opposite end of the spectrum. Right, because you go, if I have a problem here, well, clearly this is bad, then the polar opposite of this is good. Right? It's kind of like that. You flip it on its head completely. And I think submission only is a movement that was largely mostly people are unhappy with IBJJF and they wanted to create something like let's make things different, let's get rid of advantages, let's make heel hooks legal, let's make it nogi, let's do this and let's do that, let's make it professional. A lot of the critique to IBJJF, a lot of it was valid. You gotta keep that in mind. They're not there, there is an argument there. They just swung the other way, and they, you know, we're, let's let's just be the opposite of IBJF in, in any way, you know, all the ways that we were critical of it. And what they did is was they solved some problems, right? 
but they created all these other problems. You know, so if I'm a coach, right, and I'm only going to train submission only, and my fighter is only going to do submission only, this is what we're going to train. We're going to train lots of footlocks. We're going to train guard recovery. And when someone passes, I'm going to do this and not move and never turtle up. There's a reason why you don't see guys turtling up in submission only because it doesn't make sense, right? Strategically, it's a horrible idea. And then I'm going to butt scoot a lot. There's a lot of butt scooting. I wouldn't, I'm not going to work on my wrestling because tactically, there's a lot of energy and risk that goes involved with the takedown. There's not a lot of reward because there are no points. So my submission only, ironically, even though they were so submission-oriented, and in some ways they are more submission-oriented than IBJF rules, they created a problem that no one could foresee. They became less martial art-oriented. And you, know, I never thought I'd say that, but IBJF for all its flaws, I have to get take you down, control the takedown for three seconds, right? If I pass your guard, I have to be on top. There's establishing position. Now, these are real situations in a fight. Advancing the hierarchy of position so on and, and forth. My word for it, watch the UFC. Right. Like positioning is important. I think the submission only by swinging to the opposite extreme, they've created another problem. What they have done is they've created, let's like ignore positions completely. And positions are important. Watch the UFC. My suspicion is that there's more, there are more TKOs on the ground than submissions on the ground. So what that suggests to me is that position on the ground is very important. And by eliminating all points, what they did was they say, fuck it. If someone passes my guard, I'm going to do this, which makes tactical sense. If until, you did, you're getting, until you're getting punched in the face. Dropping elbows on you and you'd be dead. That is not right. self-defense. Like what Henner fought at Alvon. Oh, this is self-defense jiu-jitsu. No, that is not self-defense jiu-jitsu. That is I don't want to get tapped jiu-jitsu. And a draw is not a win. Just because you drew didn't mean you didn't lose. You still got your butt kicked. End of story. Right. You know, it's not a debate. Okay. And this and this goes back to the split between judo and jiu-jitsu. Right. My fear, and I've said this idea more times than I can count. Is that by limiting the rule set, you're going to create a void where other sports will be able to exist, much like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu inside of Judo. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu exists inside a vacuum created by Judo because Judo limited groundwork. And when you do that, it doesn't mean people are going to stop practicing it. It means that that vacuum could become a thing of itself. Case in point, DJJ. We would not exist had Kano had a better vision and understanding of grappling. Kano had a limited understanding of grappling, in my opinion. Because a fight does not stop when you take someone down. You're ludicrous if you believe that you can knock someone out with a takedown every time. I think that was his that was his argument, you know, like yeah, I'm gonna knock you out with a takedown. I'm like, that's not a very good argument. The basis of an epon is is a is a knockout because the entirety of the back is the ground. No, it's not a knockout. Even on concrete, yeah. it's not a knockout. Right. Sometimes it might be, but you can't count on it. So I think that he made a mistake and he allowed BJJ to exist. I'm in favor of your hooks in the geek. <laughs> And I'll tell you why. I mean, I've changed my mind recently on this. I think heel hook should be legal in the gi because <laughs> it's easier to defend. You ever try to heel hook someone in the gi? It's way harder. I kill your sleeve. I hold your sleeve. How are you going right. to heel hook? Right. It's so much easier to hand fight. You grab the sleeve and it's over. It would not, it would, DJJ would, would, uh, 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 by assimilating heel hooks, I think it would be a more complete martial art. However, IBJJF does have a good argument. The injury ratio, would tend to go up, which is a concern of theirs. If you're talking about sport for the masses, like judo did 100 years ago, if you want to create something for mom and dad and children, you have to worry about their safety. My counter argument to that is that the vast majority of injuries, and you guys will be able to confirm this, is not from submissions. The vast majority of injuries come from takedowns and transitions. So Jigoro Kano, once again, he was wrong because he believed that by limiting shoulder locks and wrist locks and foot locks, judo was going to become safer. And we all know that there's a lot more injuries in judo than there is in Brazilian jiu-jitsu because of impact. It's the same in wrestling. 
So heel hooks do not make jiu-jitsu more dangerous than transitioning makes jiu-jitsu dangerous or takedowns or scrambles for that matter. So I think the injury argument is a misconception of how injuries occur and where they take place. Now, I've suggested this as well. You have to collect data. This is all speculation. It's all hypothetical. The serious way to approach this discussion is to collect data on injuries. How many injuries are we seeing when heel hooks are made available? How many injuries are we seeing with takedowns? So if we're talking about safety, we're going to eliminate takedowns too? Like submission only did that. I think that was a mistake. By not rewarding the takedown, you pretty much eliminate it. Why would you wrestle? It makes no sense. You know, and if you're in a heavyweight division, if you're in a big heavyweight division, you're going to see that. But other than that, you're not you're not going to see Paulo Miao wrestle. No. Why would he? No, no, and then that's that's something you see. There's no, there's no, there's no, because there's no uh, uh, strategic advantage to it. So submission only, with all of its qualities, it came, it, it did, it solved some problems, but it created new problems. My vision of a correct rule set, one that is true to the martial art and manages to operate within a sport format is one that does reward position, but it prioritizes submission. So you would have the submission as the ultimate uh, goal in the grappling match, but you would not neglect the pass. You would not neglect turtle position. You would not neglect the takedown because those positions are important for real combat. And in many case in point, that would be the solution to the problem. It's not, it's like meeting somewhere in the middle. It's like, what is the best of the submission only world? And what is the best of the IBJJF world? And how can we meet somewhere in the middle? surprisingly no one's ever tried it that's what blows my mind because the answer to me is pretty obvious you have to you know assimilate both and it brings me to another problem the vast majority of promoters who create rule sets don't have a lot of grappling experience and i don't want to offend anyone it's not an attack on anyone but if you pay attention if you dig you don't have to dig very deep and you start looking for the people who are creating rule sets and in charge of making rule sets they either have no competition experience or very little, and sometimes they have trained. They haven't trained in years, or sometimes they have never even trained jujitsu, and they're making up rules. Can you believe that? You would think that they would ask the competitors, or lower, would, or a lower level of jujitsu understanding. I right. that's what I would do if I were to get a rule set. Because I have my own ideas, but I also have my own blind spots. I would get Leandro Lowe and you know, and the Miao brothers and Mike Mutsumetsi, and I'd sit everyone down. I'd sit Gary Tonin down. I'd sit everyone I'm like, hey guys, let's discuss. Let's right. make this intelligent. Let's let's right. let's make jujitsu better. How do we yeah. make it better? And I I would approach the high level grapplers that are in competition currently over you know like you know people that haven't competed in twenty years and are a lot of times unfamiliar with footlocks. And I know this for a fact. And because they're unfamiliar with it, the reaction is it can't be good. I don't know it. Right. But it's more out of unfamiliarity than it is about safety or even, you know, you know, whatever other argument they, they may want to use. And I think a lot of it just comes down to not thinking this through. There has to be a way to, you know, meet in the middle. And I have my own ideas. But like I said, it's not, you know, everyone's got their own ideas and they're all equally valid. So a lot of so, discussion. So to recap, uh, jujitsu was a mistake. Heel hook should be in the gi. <laughs> and the only legit rule set is like submission underground tag team EBI overtime. All right. I, I think that's a good I think I, I don't know if we have any more sacred cows left to burn. Kev, you, you no, I think we're good. Dude, man, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this, man. Literally, like you are such an intelligent mind in the world of jiu-jitsu. And, and, and honestly, I'm not just saying it, it was really an honor to be able to sit down and talk to you and to be able to pick your brain and hear the things you hear because you come from a place of, of honor and respect that like I one day hope to attain, but maybe I never will. I just appreciate you, brother. No, thank you, Kevin. It means a yeah. lot. I had a lot of fun. I hope you guys um, 
and um, you know enjoyed it as well. Um, I like to you know, like with regarding the documentary. Like I normally don't like to promote myself or my school or anything like that. People, if they want to find me, they can find me. But in terms of the documentary, I really ask people to support. And what I mean by that is, you know, I if I do the math, I'm tens of thousands of dollars in the hole with this thing. Just my time, the amount of time that I put into this, and you know, our, our production team, same thing. They put so many hours into this. This is a passion project. So we really ask because we're doing this for the BJJ community and. It's not, it was never like, oh, we're going to get rich from this. So I, I do ask people to support because this is, there's been a lot of work involved in making this possible. And, um, you know, I think that's, uh, I, I do ask people to support because it's our history, you know, to help us better understand our, our present and our future. So it, it's important. Do you have any websites, any links, anything we can talk about? Uh, yes. So you can visit our Instagram page, Close Guard the Movie. Um, yeah. And then, um, we're 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 finishing a website. We're gonna have a we're gonna have like a platform for rental and sales of the film once it's ready. We're building that right now, and um, yeah, I'm launching a book soon on it. We're gonna have some posters available for sale, most likely. I'm doing a special limited edition gi for the film. You know, we got some products as well as uh, uh, as the film itself. So we got to pay the investor back. <laughs> Ooh, new gi. A new when, gi. Now I'm excited. <laughs> when you get everything set up, you make sure and let us know. And, man, we will do everything we can to help promote We'll that be product. sure to include all the links down below for uh, our interested viewers. And I also just wanted to, to really quickly say that, uh, I, Rob, I think you're a, a good uh, example of how important, like, a higher academia could be to like just the history and the the methodology of jujitsu because you're talking even the way you're talking about it is is it's coming from a place that i don't often see and i think we could use uh, a lot of more voices like yours um and you said that you're still angling for a uh, release sometime this summer right yeah well we well thank you for the for the kind words um the plan is to finish this summer we've never worked so hard I can get into like the nitty gritty of like how difficult this is. That that's a whole podcast in itself. We have to do that some other time because hey, you're all, if the, the closer you well, right when you get closer to the release date, be sure to come on by us, and tell us, us all about it, man. <laughs> yeah, no, okay, my because like it's that's a story in itself. That's why I decided to write a book because I have so many stories on how how many you know the obstacles and the stories in Brazil and dealing with all these researchers and like the competitiveness of them. I, I decided to write something because I thought like that this has got to be said and it adds something to history. So, um, yeah, maybe we can do this again before we, we release the film and maybe right after we release the film. Hell yeah, we'll have a we'll have a watch along party at some point. <laughs> but uh, all right, well, uh, Rob, thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, we uh, everyone be sure, once again be sure to check out Closed Guard. Go follow their. Uh, the, the movie Instagram page for updates and, and different types of information. There's always new stuff coming out about it. This is going to be a, a barn burner of a film to be sure. But uh, yeah, this was just a, another solid episode of the jujitsu times podcast. All of you guys out there continue to stay safe, social distance and uh, you know, try not to get too fat before the, the mats roll in or the we're able to go back to training otherwise the heavyweight divisions are going to be overcrowded and everyone's just going to be <laughs> all right but ah uh, hell yeah but i have been your host kevin bradley joined as always by my co-host kevin gallagher and special guest robert drysdale Thank and you guys. we'll see you guys next time good night everybody right.